Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 48 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lendrum, here with my co-host, Jacob Grandstaff, and welcome, everybody, to 2022. That is right. 2021 is over, and after 47 episodes of one year, we are now ready to start the second year of our podcast. And we've got a lot to talk about already. There's The news cycle picked up a little bit. It was it was pretty slow when you agree, Jacob, throughout most of December. There, there was yeah, not yeah. a lot going I on. Mean, even November was kind of... Uh, I mean, there was the whole debacle over Joe Manchin refusing to go along with their uh, yeah. massive gargantuan spending mm-hmm. bill. But other than that, it was not a lot of, yeah. not a lot of fireworks. We mostly had in November the, the elections, of course, Virginia, New, Jer- New Jersey, and then um, the Rittenhouse verdict was a really big story. And then, yeah, it kind of died down for a while. There just wasn't much going on. And there's a lot going on now, of course, because we are currently recording on January 5th. So not even 24 hours from now will be the one-year anniversary of the glorious day that was January 6th, 2021. As I hinted in the last episode, I wrote an article at American Greatness on that subject. It's called Of Reichstags and Bastilles. We will include a link to that description below. And we'll come back to it when we get to the topic that is about January 6th. We will be discussing January 6th and how far we have come since then. We will be talking about the latest in how big tech is colluding with certain governments to push the left's worldview and censor the rights. And before we do that, we must start with uh, another good old-fashioned riff on one of the stupidest articles I've ever seen. So uh, a few episodes back, uh, I saw this op-ed by, I don't even remember the guy's name, he was some nobody, but he was just whining and complaining about the term coastal elites, you know, the term that was made famous uh, first in Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, and it was used, of course, by President Trump on the campaign trail. And he was all just saying, what's wrong with with the coast, man? Republicans must just hate the beach. (laughs) And he talked about how Alabama and Mississippi have coasts because they're in the Gulf. Those must be elitist, too. And it was just the dumbest thing ever. I'm not yet sure if this is the second dumbest article or if this is dumber than that one. But I saw this and I had when I saw the headline, I knew this was going to be rich. This is from The Hill. And the Hill, first off, the Hill used to be decent, right, Jacob? It used to be, a few years ago, it was kind of a center-right publication. It was actually like, they would give a fair view to both sides. It was it was John actually, Solomon used to be there. That's right. Then once Trump came along, they went full leftist, complete, like the rest of the mainstream media. They fired John Solomon, who, one of the best investigative reporters, he did a lot about January 6th, about voter fraud. He's done a lot of good stuff. Lots of the Biden scandals, Hunter Biden, Ukraine, all that. They fired him, and that was kind of when the mask came off at that point. Uh, But this is from The Hill. It's courtesy of a contributor named John Kenneth White. Uh, If you scroll down to his little bio at the end of the article, (laughs) this is rich. He's a professor of politics at the Catholic University of America. Interesting. He wrote a book called— I just want to break in just a second. If you notice, whenever professors write articles, whenever Mm -hmm. they write op-eds, they're always absolute crap. Oh, Every yeah. professor that I've ever seen who wrote an article, unless they were also a journalist on the side, could not write. They write, of course, because they're professors. They think their crap doesn't stink, right? They think they can write whatever dreck they want, and they'll, they'll get published because it says at the end, oh, PhD, he's, he's a doctor or whatever, that they think they can skate by on that. But yeah, he's a professor at the Catholic University of America, and his latest book is What Happened to the Republican Party? Well, after this article, you're going to be asking yourself, what happened to the Catholic University of America that they allow cretins like this to write for them? So the headline, the the title of this article, this is glorious. Quote, the Constitution isn't working, end quote. (laughs) I'm I'm just going to do this. I'm I'm going to read through most of this. I'll skim through a little bit of it, but oh, there's so much good stuff in this article. 
It starts off, the U.S. Constitution is the sacred text of American government and civic life. But it's time to face facts. The document written in 1787 isn't working. The signs are all around us. I'm sure you're going to tell us what the signs are, uh, Professor Professor White. Just 38% of Americans in a recent Gallup poll expressed either a, quote, great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the presidency, down from 48% in 2001. Congress, never high in the public's estimation to begin with, fell from 26% to a mere 12%. Supreme Court has also taken a hit down from 50 to 36% during the same period. Gee, I didn't know approval polls are now like the ultimate authority. They're like, oh, if appro- approval ratings are down, then that means obviously, you know, the, the Constitution isn't working, right, Jacob? I don't know. I think from their warped neo-Marxist view, they're afraid that if the approval rating drops low enough that you'll see a violent revolution and they could see a right-wing fascistic state take the place of our current form of government. I think in the back of their mind, that's what they believe. So they've got to keep the approval rating of our institutions high so you don't have a violent revolution. Right. Because realistically, as we get into this article, you're going to find out that a revolution is what they want. They just can't stand the possibility that they, they will not allow themselves to say that language openly. They'll try to mask it in. Oh, no, we're patriotic. We, we want to change the Constitution to make it better, you know, as if they knew better than what the founding fathers did. Well, but they I, want an institutional revolution, like one that goes through that yeah. marches through the institutions. Mm-hmm. Next paragraph. This is glorious. Just the absolute double standard here. Quote, one reason often cited for the failing constitution, interesting, are the people who inhabit its carefully crafted institutions. We were just talking about that. Gee, I wonder what institutions are corrupted. Is he going to say, you know, the federal bureaucracy? No, no, no. In Congress, serious legislators are scarce, as many members aim for viral recognition on social media. Freshman Representative Madison Cawthorn freely admitted, I have built my staff around comms, not legislation. Uh, what's wrong with that? Aren't, isn't it a job of a politician to know how to communicate their agenda? That's why President Trump was so good at it. He used Twitter to communicate in a way that people understood and wasn't this 3,000-page legalese garbage. He goes on, Cawthorn is hardly alone. Reps Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gozar, Jim Jordan, and Lauren Boebert represent a new breed of legislators who seek recognition and are largely uninterested in passing actual laws. Uh, Jacob, you see a pattern with all the members of Congress he just listed there? Well, they tend to be uh, – other than the fact that they're new, um, I mean unless I'm, uh, I'm thinking of something else that you're, that, you're, that you're not thinking of. But I mean they're new. They're young, mostly, mostly pro-Trump. They're pro-Trump. They're all Republicans. He doesn't list a single Democrat. And in a world where AOC exists, who literally built her entire persona on social media, as you, Jacob, have pointed out previously on this podcast, she has more Twitter followers than all other members of Congress combined. He's going to act like, oh, clearly the issue are these Republicans who are on social media. But, oh, no, AOC is fine. She, she, she's okay because, you know, she's she's on the same side as me. It's a clear double standard that this isn't about the institutions failing. This is that, oh, Republicans are becoming effective. Again, Paul Gozar, who we talked about in a previous episode, he was very effective with his messaging in that uh, meme anime video he posted about immigration. So they censured him and removed him from his committees. Quote, disappointing presidents have become the norm. George W. Bush Barack Obama and Donald Trump failed to bring the country together. Well, that's actually impressive. He threw in Barack Obama there. That's I'll give him pro- little props for that. With Trump leaving office, amplifying spurious claims of election fraud that led to the insurrection on January 6th. Although it is early in the Biden presidency, voter disenchantment is already clear, and the unity he promised in his inaugural address seems as elusive as ever. In the, in the 19th century, James Bryce famously remarked that great men do not become presidents. Indeed, great presidents such as George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Franklin D. Roosevelt are the exception, not the rule. 
So George Washington was great, but the document he helped write uh, apparently isn't great anymore. Okay, that, that makes sense. Again, props that he's acknowledging that Obama and Biden failed as well. But as you'll see, again, he sends back into partisan ways. Today, many see the courts not as arbiters of justice, but inhibited by, inhabited by what Justice Amy Coney Barrett unsuccessfully tried to refute as, quote, a bunch of partisan hacks. 61% of American adults surveyed by Quinnipiac now believe the decisions of the Supreme Court are motivated by politics. I mean, when have they not been motivated yeah, by politics? I mean, it's not, that's not They've always new. been. That's, that's always been. They're appointed by presidents of certain parties. That's how it has always been. My goodness. Just 32% think his judgments are based on dispassionate readings of the law. Justice Sonia Sotomayor describes today's court as fractured. She's right. See, that, that right there, that's already their attempt. I We were talking about this off the air a while ago, Jacob. They're going to try to lionize a new liberal member of the Supreme Court now that RBG is not around anymore. Mm -hmm. I think Sotomayor is probably going to be the one. I mean, why not, right? They, they can't go for a briar because he's an old white guy. It's got to be a woman. I it's got to be a, a minority be a and a woman, yeah. But the Constitution's failures go much deeper, he continues. The framers designed the presidency to execute laws, not make them. But the vagaries of con the vague what in the world is that word? But the vagaries of congressional legislation have given the president the power to make laws through executive orders. The result is a roller coaster from one president to the next. Donald Trump loved signing executive orders, putting a sharpie on 220 of them. Thus far, Joe Biden has signed 76 orders. With progressive Democrats urging even more, Trump enjoyed reversing Barack Obama's executive orders. Biden feels the same way about Trump's. So his issue is that uh, executive orders are a thing, and therefore that means the Constitution's failing. I mean, again, that is a power granted under the Constitution. That's not exactly a, a crazy concept. That it's it's not like that's a flaw with the Constitution. That's always been a thing. And if you really want to talk about, you know, how many have been signed under certain presidents, notice again, notice something there, Jacob. He very conveniently leaves out. He mentioned how many Trump has Trump signed. He mentioned how many Biden has signed. He mentioned Obama's name. Did he mention how many Obama signed? Of course he didn't, because that would debunk his entire argument right there, because uh, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page right now. Obama, over his presidency, signed 276 executive orders, which is more than Trump signed. And in fact, the number of executive orders Trump signed, 220, is the lowest of any president since George H.W. Bush. So again, they leave out key context that would otherwise completely debunk their argument, but it's that's just how dishonest this hack is. Meanwhile, Congress is failing to protect its constitutional prerogatives. Instead of reserving the right of reserving to itself the right to declare war, Congress has surrendered war making to the president, something the framers assiduously sought to avoid. To be fair, that is that's objectively a good point. That is that's one thing he gets right because Obama basically just unilaterally declared war on Libya and was getting ready to pass on a war with Syria on to onto Hillary Clinton. So that's a good point. He's 100 percent correct about that. And again, context would remind you that President Trump was the first president since Jimmy Carter to not get us involved in any new wars. But yeah, that that is a good point. We need to rein in our war making powers. While Trump egregiously ignored his oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution on January 6th, the prescribed constitutional remedy of impeachment and conviction failed. Rather than asserting its constitutional rights, Congress has surrendered them to extreme partisanship. In the House, congressional Republicans are willing to forfeit Congress's subpoena powers in the January 6th investigation, but seek to reassert them if they are rewarded with congressional control in 2023. In the Senate, the filibuster is no longer the rare instrument designed to halt legislation and foster debate. Instead, the 60-vote threshold has become the default mechanism to stop all legislation without a word. So he argues that because Trump wasn't removed from office, uh, that means the con that the Constitution is failing. Oh, no, because the president I don't like wasn't actually removed. That means we need to get rid of the Constitution, or we need to make impeachment easier. We need to make impeachment a simple majority, according to this guy. 
And he also says because the January 6th committee is not succeeding in subpoenaing Americans and throwing hundreds of Americans in gulags, uh, that means the Constitution is failing. You see, you see a pattern here. He's not really arguing that the Constitution isn't working. He's arguing that the Constitution isn't allowing them to take the authoritarian measures they want to take. They want to be able to jail Americans. They want to be able to unilaterally remove presidents they don't like. It's a matter of the Constitution succeeding realistically is what he's talking about here. It's preventing them from doing what they really want to do. And that's what he's coping about here. When George Washington supposedly was asked by Thomas Jefferson why the Senate was created, he responded, why did you just now pour your coffee into that saucer before drinking? Jefferson answered, to cool it. Washington responded, even so, we pour our legislation into the senatorial saucer to cool it. The Senate was designed to cool legislation, not kill it, White says. Well, again, some legislation deserves to be killed. The Green New Deal, Build Back Better, the bill to federalize all of our elections. This is bad legislation that should be killed by the filibuster. But again, because these authoritarian measures are not allowed by the barriers that were put in place by the fathers, he doesn't support this, obviously. He thinks, oh, the, the, the founding fathers got it wrong with the filibuster. He knows he's not saying that like the filibuster was warped or anything since the founders. He's arguing it just doesn't work anymore. Also, you want to talk about the Senate being actually being perverted since it was created? The 17th Amendment. The senators were not supposed to be elected popularly by the people, right, Jacob? They were elected by the state legislatures who came together to vote for senators. The House was the people's house. The Senate was elected through a slightly more representative Republican process. Mm -hmm. And if that was still in place, Republicans would have a supermajority in the Senate right now. But again, that, that obviously does not fit his worldview. That is a change that was good in his eyes, so he doesn't. He conveniently ignores that. As partisanship grips the nation, he comes back to the Supreme Court with this one. More turn to the Supreme Court to revoke actions that either party finds offensive. During the past 20 years, the Supreme Court has waded into numerous political controversies. In 2000, a conservative majority in Bush v. Gore found that George W. Bush's constitutional right to equal protection under the law overrode Florida's Supreme Court ruling that all ballots be hand-counted. However, the Supreme Court declared that its decision only applied to George W. Bush, while ordinary citizens in poorer areas whose inferior voting machines inaccurately count their votes would have no jurisdiction. So because the Supreme Court prevented a law uh, uh, election from being stolen in 2000, uh, that means it's flawed. But because they didn't prevent the election from being stolen last year, uh, uh, that, that's okay. In 2020, I should say, two years ago now. That's okay. Since then, judicial partisanship has escalated, with the conservative court keeping the 2021 Texas abortion law in place. In her dissent, Justice Sotomayor, they are again, they're trying to astroturf her being the new RBG. The court thus betrays not only the citizens of Texas, Sotomayor wrote, but also our constitutional system of government. So because the Supreme Court is potentially allowing abortion to finally be outlawed, again, that means it's not working. And that's not a, a matter of the court being diluted from what it originally was. Because they made a ruling he doesn't like, that means it's failing, and therefore the Constitution is failing. It won't be enough to merely to reform the filibuster, he continues, add more justices to the Supreme Court, change presidents, or surrender presidential powers to Congress. So he outlines here all the ways he wants to change the Constitution. Add more justices, reform the filibuster, that's the buzzword they love using now. It, it's so blatant, they're being so obvious about it, just like that Time Magazine article about the election. A document written in 1787 is inadequate for the 21st century. The Electoral College is poised to create more misfires with popular vote winners not becoming presidents, as had already happened twice this century. That's literally the point of the Electoral College, Professor White. The presidents, the founding fathers said, if it's just a popular vote, then it becomes rule of the majority to completely wipe out the minority. The Electoral College was created to be representative so that small rural towns could not be overruled 
by cities on the coast. They foresaw this 200 years ago. They were geniuses about it. They knew it was coming. But again, because that doesn't benefit your political party, professor, you think it's a bad thing. Territorial expansion has resulted in 16% of the U.S. population controlling half the seats in the U.S. Senate. That, no no kidding, Sherlock, that's the point. That's why it is there, you moron. The Dakotas are but one example. When the two states were admitted to the Union in 1888, Republicans deliberately split the territory in two, thereby creating four new senators, not two. Meanwhile, the strict constructionists of the Supreme Court resort to determining the original intent of a document written 234 years ago rather than understanding that it was a beginning, not an ending point. No, it was an ending point. It was the alpha and the omega of the founding documents of the United States. That's the point. But again, he admits only an example of Republican partisanship, therefore constitution bad. Here's the conclusion. This is glorious. Here's You're going to love this. Thomas Jefferson once remarked, quote, I hold it that a little rebellion every now and then is a good thing and as necessary is the politic in the political world as storms are in the physical, end quote. White then ends the article saying this, let's face facts. The constitution isn't working. It's time for a little rebellion. So basically this guy is a, is a traitor. He's, 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 he's a traitor against a tra the constitution, the country, and the people. And the founders. And ex considering he said here early in this article, he complained and moaned and whined and cried about January 6th and how Trump wasn't removed immediately from office after January 6th. The same article, he ends saying we need a rebellion. Just not the kind of rebellion we had on January 6th, right? Well, you notice he points out all these flaws in the Constitution, but he doesn't really come up with a concrete answer. He doesn't really have a no. finalized solution. Okay, you want to rebel against the Constitution. What does that mean? Does that mean we create a new constitutional convention to create a more modern constitution? Does that mean we just throw it out and ignore it? Well, what does that mean, Professor? Like, he doesn't provide any concrete examples. And this is what the left has been doing for the past, well, 70 years, is they don't offer, they don't come right out and offer examples of what they want. Instead, they offer critiques of society, critique after critique. It's like death by a thousand cuts. And it's that's where critical legal theory comes out, critical race theory. Mm -hmm. They just want to constantly criticize to the point to where everyone has it in the back of their mind. That the country is bad, the country is messed up, the legal system is messed up, the system, whatever the the uh, nebulous word system means, the system is all messed up, but they don't have a solution. So anytime you have an upheaval like the George Floyd riots, then it then people come to the forefront. All of these entrepreneurs come to the forefront and say, well, let's just do – let's set up a communist system. Like Chaz, yeah. They, yeah, they, like Chaz. They, they will never say what their solutions are. They do have solutions. They just won't say them because they know they're politically unpopular. Their solution is is Chaz. It's it's trannies in high school bathrooms raping freshman girls. It's it's critical race theory telling three year old white babies that they're racist and their parents are racist. You but, know, it's, they they know how unpopular that would be. But by sowing enough discontent in the general population through articles like this, through mm -hmm. and you I mean I can only imagine what his seminars are like at Catholic <laughs> University. So by so continually to sow discord and criticism of the United States government, of the economy, of everything about the history of the country, what they do is they create the fertile environment that sets up a, a situation where you could have a French revolution or a Bolshevik revolution. So then, of course, they are the prophets who then step to the forefront and say, look, we've, you know, I've been against the system the whole time. You might as well give me power. That's the that's the way this thing has played out throughout history in multiple countries. Yeah, people, uh, people like this are, there really are a danger to the American system of government. The mm -hmm. system they claim, you know, it's funny, they attack the January 6th protesters of being anti-democratic, uh, of being against the, the the system, against the government, everything. These people, these professors are actually far more 
uh, insurrectionary than any of those people who uh, charged the Capitol on January 6th of last year. Exactly. That's what drives me the most insane, like furious with the left is when they dare to claim they're the patriots. They who say, oh, all the founding fathers own slaves, tear down all the monuments. We we need to remove, erase the constitution and start over. It's not working anymore. They dare to turn around and say, oh, you should get vaccinated, wear three masks because it's patriotic. Oh, the January 6th protesters are unpatriotic. They, they tried claiming, oh, the January 6th protesters are, you know, this is an insult to everything the founding fathers believed in. I'm like, uh, are you familiar with the Boston Tea Party? Are you familiar with tarring and feathering? Are you familiar with how our country was literally born? Our country was born out of violence. It was called the American Revolution. So people like that who obviously don't know anything about the founding of this country, the founding fathers and what they believed in, what George Washington did as president with the Whiskey Rebellion, they don't know a thing. They are just using these buzzwords to invoke the idea of patriotism, to sound like they're the ones saving democracy, democracy, our democracy. That's a phrase you see a lot. Our democracy is in peril. They know what they're doing. And again, he does kind of hint, say it fairly obviously in this article, he does want to completely rewrite the constitution, if not outright, just delete it, you know, control, alt, delete mm -hmm. it, because that is their end goal for this country. Well, speaking of the January 6th, uh, insurrection that uh, we're about unquote, to celebrate yeah. tomorrow. Unarmed insurrection. Happy Insurrection Day, everybody. Celebrate or mourn, depending on your perspective. Either way, whether you're celebrating or mourn, it's a victory for us. Because if you're mourning, it shows that you recognize that we have won. If you're yes. celebrating, you recognize that we have won. So either way, it's you know either way, this is the thing. The right comes out on top tomorrow. Because when you turn on MSNBC, and in fact, I would encourage everyone to go ahead and turn on MSNBC. Watch a lot of <laughs> CNN tomorrow. It's going to give you some really wonderful, sadistic gratification to watch the tears just flow down the cheeks. Don Lemon, those. Rachel Maddow. Oh yeah, it's going to oh, be it's going to be glorious tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to be the first anniversary. It's going to be the first Insurrection Day. They're going to be talking about it like it's the anniversary of nine eleven. Is where were you on that day? What were you doing on that day? Like it's they're going to talk about it literally like three thousand people died. But see, the glorious thing for us is ten years from now when we celebrate the the 10th anniversary of insurrection day or i should say nine years from now they are going to be they're going to be running that narrative where were you on the day that democracy stopped turning <laughs> we're going to be basically like yeah i was at home eating popcorn cheering them on like yes I, yeah i was like being a you know yes. couch cheerleader it, it was it was kind of glorious to to watch it on uh, unfold on television as these uh these horrified that people who weren't members of the elite class dared to enter their castle. It was glorious. As the, as the peasants stormed through at the capital of the American empire. So the, another thing is that I just want to point out is that the people that who live around Washington, D.C., they've been able to successfully ignore the demands and concerns of people who aren't privileged enough to live off the fat of the rest of the country. Because mm -hmm. let's be honest, this area has the, the standard of living it does and it has six of the 10 richest counties in the country because they're supported by tax dollars gathered and accumulated from the rest of the country. The rest of the country pours its wealth into the D.C. area so these people can enjoy their high standard of living. So they didn't experience a recession. So they didn't understand what the Tea Party anger was about. They yep. figured this is just a bunch of radical racists who are looking for an excuse to be angry. Like, what are these people so angry about? The country's doing great. We've got the first minority president. He's doing a great job. The economy is recovering from the Bush Republican recession. And then under Trump, they can't figure out why would they elect such an angry businessman this doesn't make any sense the country's doing great why would they turn to fascism and then you see they see these people storming the capital it's like wait a minute i, I thought these people were too poor to travel to washington dc that's right this is the thing that perplexed them is like how are all these peasants 
able to afford plane tickets? How are they able to afford hotel tickets? Like, where are they getting this money? I thought we had successfully impoverished the rest of the country to the point where they would never be able to get within three counties of this capital. Because the reality is most of those people who travel to D.C. probably wouldn't be able to afford to buy a home within a 150, 100 to 150 mm-hmm. mile radius of the Capitol building. Right. Just because the, pro- the property values are so high in the excerpts, not even the suburbs, but the excerpts, that they would never be able to get close. But they also underestimate on that same note, not just the financial capabilities, but also just the willpower. They, I think they did realize in that moment the sheer willpower that these people were willing to come. All these millions of people came to D.C. three times. Remember, there was the there were three soft steel marches, one in November, one in December, and then January 6th, that they came out every single time in these record numbers because they love Trump that much. And they could not stand the fact that you, you would never see that for Romney. You would never see that for Bush or McCain. You would never see that for any, not even really Reagan. They, and they realized that and were terrified by that. So Politico runs a story called They Stormed the Capitol, Now They're Running for Office. And now when I saw the headline, I was, I was uh, browsing through Real Clear Politics. I was like, oh, that. I mean, what, this is like five or six, maybe you're running for city council or school board. Right, because they did that in 2018. There were a handful of articles from like the SPLC and others freaking out. Oh, in the 2018 midterms, a record number of white nationalists are running for office. And it was like eight, like, and even half, half of them weren't really white mm-hmm. nationalists. There were a handful who were legitimate like Holocaust deniers and neo-Nazis, but like very few. There were a couple, like they, they listed Steve King as one of them. Like it was, it was absurd, but like they freaked out over like literally less than a dozen, half a dozen people running nationwide. So Brittany Gibson writes in Politico, at least 57 individuals who played a role in the day's events, including some who were arrested on charges related to the Capitol attack are running for office in 2022. Let's freaking go. Yes, let's do this. The January 6th storming of the Capitol is remembered as one of the darkest and most shameful episodes in American history. I don't know about that. I mean, uh, you got Pearl Harbor, you got the Civil War, you got, uh, you know, 9-11. There's a bunch of, uh, yeah, putting that up there is kind of ridiculous. There's a handful of instances of the Capitol being attacked in the past. In 1998, there was a shooting. There was a shooting by uh, Puerto Rican nationalists in 1954. There have been attacks on the Capitol before, and this wasn't really an attack. It was a peaceful protest. There have been actual shootings and bombings at the Capitol before i wonder if she includes the storming of the uh, was it the department of the interior back in the summer yeah when all those, uh, mm-hmm. radical environmentalists like the, new green deal types yeah. yeah and the attorney general had no idea it even happened like, they exactly just, they occupy the government government building has no idea that it even wasn't even informed so she says at least 57 individuals who played a role in that day's events either by attending the save america rally that preceded the riots gathering at the capitol steps or breaching the capitol itself are now running for elected office Rather than disqualifying them from public service, the events of January 6th appeared to have served as political springboard for dozens of Republicans who will be on the ballot this year for federal, state, and local offices. It's difficult to state with precision just how many of those who participated in the rally on the ellipse marched to the Capitol or stormed the building will be on the ballot in 2022 in many states. Candidate filing deadlines are months away. So it's 57 at this point, but it could be 200 by the time candidate filings are done. A political a Politico review of Department of Justice case reports, social media posts, news accounts, and interviews with attendees found that last year alone, January um, eleven January six protesters were elected to office, ranging from state legislature to city council to school board. This year, more than two dozen are running for Congress, state legislature, statewide office, including at least two protesters who actually entered the Capitol. At least five January sixers. Hey, I like that. That's a good sound. January sixthers, you know, like the forty nine, yeah. like the forty ers who uh, dug for gold in eighteen forty nine. You know, it's a pretty good, pretty good ring to it. The January sixthers, 
Yeah, my grandpa was a January 6th. He was there nice. when history was made. <laughs> They're gearing up for gubernatorial races. Among them, Doug Mastriano, a Pennsylvania state senator and leading voice in the national movement to discredit the 2020 election results. At least three candidates this year face charges related to the January 6th riots. Well, I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a couple of years ago, there were, or a few years ago, there was a state senator, a Democrat in Virginia, who mm -hmm. was uh, reelected while he was sitting in a jail cell. This, this is a guy who's assaulted multiple people in his life. Uh, he was oh, uh, in yeah. his 50s whenever he got a 17-year-old girl pregnant and then married her a year later. Uh, he's kind of a really quirky character. Like he's, he's the kind of – he'll challenge people to a fistfight if you impugn his character. He's been doing this since the 90s. Just a really colorful, <laughs> weird dude. But yeah, he won re-election. The voters love him. Like that's the weird – I can't remember his name, but the guy's weird. But the, the voters absolutely love him because he's really good with constituent services. But they elected him while he was sitting in a jail cell. So yeah. it's not have, unprecedented. It's not – and you had – I think like last year in D.C. there was like someone got elected to like the city council while he was literally in jail. or so like a, a prisoner, an inmate who had never run for office before, and he got elected in a jail in D.C. And it happens all the time. Few of them express any contrition for their involvement in a day that ended up with the assault on the nation's temple of democracy. There's, that's the thing. They love to use religious imagery <laughs> like the state is your new church now. Because these people have no religion. They mm -hmm. have no hope for life after death. They're completely uh, lost in this world, so they have to create their own religion. So they create their religion around civics and around democracy. This is a temple of democracy. What it's just, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's unhealthy. It's it is really, unhealthy. Yeah. It really is mentally, it, uh, most of these people, that's the reason why so many people in journalism are mentally unstable. They're just, they mm -hmm. really are mentally <laughs> unstable. They have, they're, they're constantly taking antidepressants. They're constantly seeing shrinks. They're, they're just really, really sad people. And they profiled this, uh, this person in Michigan, Ryan Kelly, who's running for governor. Ryan Kelly said, quote, they're uh, going to try to twist it and bend it to fit the narrative that I'm a terrible human being that I'm an insurrectionist and I know that's coming. So, you know, a lot of these people, they understand the attack ads are coming, but they're willing okay. to run anyway. They're willing to take the arrows. They're willing to put their neck out there. And, you know, kudos to them for being willing to, to uh, you know, to face the music and stand down the media. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's why Mark McCloskey is running for the U.S. Senate in Missouri. The guy from the uh, the, the gun-toting couple during the BLM riots, they point their guns at rioters who were threatening their home. Like, he's running for Senate now and good for him. Same thing. Over time, perceptions about the Capitol riots have evolved, and this is what really irks this them. This is most. what terrifies them: the fact that they're not able to control the narrative. So with at least you got historical events like the civil rights movement, the marches, and stuff. They're able to control that narrative because the people are all dead who lived that era. So the yep. historians are able to shape the narrative. They can't shape this narrative, and that's what drives them crazy. So over time, perceptions about the Capitol riots have evolved, with partisan gaps surfacing on the issues of culpability, motivation, and the severity of the violence. But Democrats are determined to hold this class of candidates accountable for their role in a national day of infamy and keep voters focused on the violent nature of the attack on the Capitol. Violent nature. Again, who died other than Ashley Babbitt, the Trump supporter, unarmed, female veteran of the Air Force who was shot and killed by a Capitol Police officer who was murdered that day by a Trump supporter. Nobody. So for our main topic today, we're going to be talking about, uh, of course, a classic topic, big tech. So who does love talking about big tech, right? And this is interesting because this is something that I, I like to think I'm fairly savvy about, you know, the political news cycle and big tech and whatnot, the alternatives. I literally had no idea what this was about. Jacob texted me when we were discussing what to talk about in the next episode. He said, we got to cover the bread tube thing. I said, bread tube what, what what in the world is that is that some cooking channel or something like i literally had never heard of these people before so jacob what is bread tube and why should people care about what is going on with this coalition of leftists on the internet so when you think about youtube the political influence that youtube has had youtubers have had over the past decade when youtube started it was mostly like just funny videos cat videos skits, home videos yeah, yeah like skit people making skits in their bedroom stuff like that 
And then it eventually, it slowly became more and more popular, and the popularity took off over the um, the new atheism, the new atheist movement that uh, cropped up behind Richard Dawkins and all those other new atheists in the early 2000s. It was those people who flooded YouTube with their content. And then you had, of course, Christians counteracting and trying to refute their ideas and stuff like that. And this, this was the big debate in the late early 2000s, so like 2008, 2009. It really hit a crescendo kind of uh, 2010, 2011 or so. In 2012, YouTube changed its algorithm because they were initially rewarding views. So people would make videos to get views, to run the view count up. And it didn't matter if someone was on their channel for three seconds and then left. They would get a high view count. They would get rewarded for it. So YouTube wanted to keep people on the channel for longer periods of time. So they started rewarding length of viewing content. So if you could get people to watch your video for a longer period of time, you would be rewarded for it. This made it easier for people who created video essays to become popular. And people on the right were especially poised to take advantage of this because the left was using pure – there was a lot of young atheists. They were using a lot of emotionalism to get people you know, excited about rebellion because it's mainly just based on around rebellion. A lot of rebellious teenagers and young adults who didn't like their Christian parents or Muslim parents that were rebelling against this. So, yeah, I'm becoming, Upholding all the rules. I'm not allowed to have alcohol or anything. Yeah, not, yeah. So I'm going to become an atheist. That's how I'm going to rebel. So this became – it just became a uh, means for youth rebellion. Well, whenever YouTube made it so that longer videos were rewarded – it became harder for these new atheists to maintain their dominance. So right-wing content creators started going on there and making like 30-minute long video essays, and they started racking up the views because of that. And that's how you saw eventually the rise of people like Paul Joseph Watson, yeah. uh, Lauren Southern. Milo Yiannopoulos, Milo Gavin Yiannopoulos, McGinnis. Yeah, Gavin McGinnis. A lot, a lot of the people on the right, uh, Stephen Molyneux, he was kind of popular. Oh, yeah. I believe Stephen Molyneux, I, I first heard about him um, during whenever I first got involved in politics during the Ron Paul run of 2012. I believe – I believe he's an atheist, if I'm not mistaken. I think he is, yeah. He's a strange figure, to say the least. Bottom line is, these people came along in the culture war, Twitter, YouTube, and they were beating the left at their own game, and the left didn't know how to handle it. Mm -hmm. But my first perception of Molyneux, though, was, was that he was a leftist, because at the time, everything, the, you know, the atheism, the new atheism debate, that was what was just dominating YouTube, and mm -hmm. then all the comments stuff all over the internet. So Molyneux, of course, was coming out as a rational theorist against the idea of, of God, if I remember correctly, against God, against uh, Christian and stuff. And so I figured, well, he's a leftist. Right. And I was shocked to find out because I kind of tuned out of politics in the mid 20-teens. I was shocked to find out mm. in 2017 that he actually supported Trump and he had moved to the right. And it's similar, to, it's similar to like Sargon of Akkad is another example of a classic liberal who now is definitively on the right because he's against political correctness and wokeness and all this other stuff. And Molyneux's evolution is kind of emblematic of YouTube's evolution over the you know subsequent years from Obama to the Trump era. You had a lot of people who were very rational, classical liberals, and as the culture war started turning more ethnic and less – socially conservative and religious, a lot of these people started influencing young minds to move to the right. And so it, this was, they benefited from the change of rules that YouTube put in in 2012. So after Trump's victory and with the help of people like Molyneux, Stephen Crowder, the left was at their wits end of what to do about this YouTube problem. So in 2019, there was a profile on this guy named Caleb Kane, a kid from West Virginia who became radicalized by the right through YouTube. And radicalized, meaning he now supports Trump? Um, well, radicalized in the sense that he was flirting with neo-Nazism. Oh, so okay, so he, actually a radical. Because these days, whenever they say radical or far-right or extremist or whatever, n the natural assumption is that, oh, this person supported Trump, and that's about it. But right, so, so in this case, an actual radical. Well, he was he, he was a liberal in college. He dropped out of college, and he's from West Virginia. So it, you can imagine, like, the, a lot of the socioeconomic problems, it, it kind of, he was emblematic of that. He dropped out of college. He didn't have a lot of friends. He would spend all his time online, and then 
by being online, he stumbled across Molyneux, which led him to more radical figures. And he eventually, you know, ventured off close to neo-Nazism before he got brought back from the brink as the New York Times piece on it. This guy, Kane, he eventually switched. He did a 180. He slowly started moving away from the right, and then he quickly became a leftist. And the way he became a leftist was because he saw Lauren Southern debate someone on immigration, and he felt that the leftist won the debate. And that kind of bust his bubble on his view of immigration. And then he saw a few more debates, and he slowly began gravitating toward the left. And to the point, like, it wasn't just like, okay, I'm going to become a moderate. No, he became vociferously a socialist, a leftist, you know, basically switched from being a right-wing radical to, be, uh, radical to becoming a left-wing radical. And the, the interviewer asked him, so have you considered maybe getting off the internet and just kind of making relationships with people offline? Mm-hmm. And his response was kind of confused, like, no, why would I do that? The internet is where these debates take place. They don't take place offline. And it kind of shows – and the article does kind of point out that this is a problem with a lot of young men especially because they – don't have a lot of they don't have a lot of friend circles and they point out this guy grew up in a post-industrial West Virginia so if he was born 20 years earlier he wouldn't have done any of this like he would have gone gotten a union job made good wages gotten married young raised a family bought a house had a probably been a moderate Democrat like Joe Manchin working class blue collar yeah but because he grew up in post-industrial West Virginia like so many millions of others across the Midwest, then he ended up falling into radical politics, and he, they're looking for community. They fa- they find community with neo Nazis, and then if they their bubble gets burst, they find community with communists, and it's just kind of they're just back and forth. But wherever they find community, it's always online. It's never in the real world, and it of course pushes them toward radicalism one way or the other. But the the reason why the the focus of our main topic today is why this guy Caleb Kane ended up switching from being basically alt right to alt-left or radical left or socialist. And the reason this happened is because, as I mentioned, the left was trying to figure out what do we do about the radicalization of young people on YouTube. And the answer was a lot of YouTubers started making leftist YouTube channels. And they, they did so. They attracted the right by, um, by manipulating the YouTube algorithm because mm-hmm. what YouTube was doing is they would show somebody a video and then they would show someone a similar video. But they found that people got bored with that. After watching a couple of videos on the same topic saying the same thing, people would leave YouTube. They discovered what we can do is we can hack their – kind of hack their minds by showing them a video that's similar but slightly different that gives them more information, additional information of what they were seeking out. So someone goes and watches – they watch a Molyneux video, then they're given something a little more spicy, something a little more edgy, a little more edgy. And eventually it leads them down this road to when they're basically a full-blown neo-Nazi. And they were trying to figure out what do we do about this problem because YouTube is – they don't care. They're just looking at profits, and their answer to that, these leftist YouTubers, their answer to that was, well, what we'll do is we'll use the same terminology that the alt-right uses. We'll hack the alt-right's terminology, and that will allow our videos to pop up as recommended videos by YouTube. So after they get through watching a Molyneux video, instead of going down the rabbit hole of far-right politics, they'll jump down the rabbit hole of left-wing politics, and they'll hear hear the other side. And this is how these leftist YouTubers found just unbelievable success. Like these are these are people who were doubling their subscriber or their followers on YouTube in, in six months. They were shooting up to over – some of them have over a million subscribers on YouTube. For the first time in history, they were finally able to compete with the right. They, this is recent. Like they didn't start actually being able to compete with the right's numbers until 2019, 2020. So the Times writes, quote, in 2018, nearly four years after Kane began watching recommendations, these videos were made by left-wing creators, but they mimic the aesthetics of right-wing YouTube down to the combative titles and the mocking use of words like, quote, triggered and, quote, snowflake. So they would use these words that the right used. So they were speaking their language, but they were using triggered to describe right-wing people who were triggered. They were using snowflake to describe right. right-wing yep. snowflakes, just as the, le- the, the right had used to mock the left. 
Uh, it writes, unlike most progressives, Caleb Kane of West Virginia had seen take on the right. Mr. Steve Bonnell, who goes by, you may have heard him, uh, goes by Destiny, and Miss Natalie Wynn, who goes by ContraPoints, were funny and engaging. They spoke the language, the native language of YouTube, and they didn't get outraged by far-right ideas. Instead, they rolled their eyes at them and made them seem shallow and unsophisticated. This group of leftist YouTubers called themselves BreadTube. That's a reference to the left-wing anarchist Peter Kropotkin's 1892 book, The Conquest of Bread. So the core of their strategy was to talk about a lot of the same topics that far-right creators did, and uh, many times they would respond directly to right-wingers' videos and, uh, and call them out for debate. And this was a right-wing strategy. This is what a lot of conservatives would do when the left was dominant on YouTube, when the atheists were dominant on YouTube. Right-wingers and Christians would call them out for a debate. They would challenge them to, to a debate. And this is what the left-wingers started doing once the right became dominant. Is they started challenging right-wingers to a debate to, so it wouldn't just be a right-wing echo chamber. And by doing this, they were able to get their videos recommended to the same audience that was watching these right-wing videos. Now, who is BreadTube? Um, there's, I, I looked into this. Uh, I had vaguely heard of it. Obviously, I knew of some of the people. You probably heard of some of these people who are, um, who are part of this. But I didn't realize the, 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 in the, the influence of BreadTube. But this is actually uh, extremely – this group is extremely influential. And one of the reasons is because most of these people aren't just kids in their basement who are making videos. Whereas a lot of the people on the right who would make videos, uh, they're you know just 19-year-old college students who are Christian and don't like their faith being attacked. So they'll just make a funny video attacking the people who are attacking their faith, stuff like that. Most of these people have college degrees. And not only do they have college degrees, many of them have masters. Some of them have PhDs. So this isn't just a group of ragtag people on YouTube. Many of these are people who in another life would be professors. So there's dozens possibly uh, – I saw about 120 was a list that I saw of bread tubers. Um, there's possibly many more hundreds than that. But uh, here, just a limited list of the more influential ones are Thought Slime. Thought Slime is a non-binary Canadian. Um, he's a leftist and describes himself as a leftist and an anarchist. You'll find that that's a recurring theme is that quite a few of these people are quote-unquote non-binary slash trannies. Yes, yes. Uh, there's Hassan Piker. Who I know was in he the, was Young he was, Turks, right? I or, believe so. I think so. I think, I think he yeah, he was Young Turks and yeah, I, I have heard of him. Um, there's Alexander Haley who goes by Alexander Hall. Ian Kochinski, who goes by Valsh. Yeah, I've heard of that one. Oliver, who now goes by Abigail. Another uh, Abigail Thorne, uh, who goes, whose channel Philosophy Tube has uh, it doubled its subscribers from 2018 to 2019 to nearly 470,000 subscribers at that point. When I read the article on that, I don't know. She's probably got more than a million now. Uh, and its viewers at the time in September 2019, its uh, its channel had been viewed more than 21 million times. So it's got to be way more than that by this by this point. Oh yeah, so, yeah. These are not these are not small fries. No, there's a uh, Steve. Bonnell, Steve Bonnell, or Destiny, as I mentioned uh, re uh, just now. Natalie Wynn, uh, who's also transgender, who was influential in turning uh, this Caleb guy from West Virginia. Oh, so his real name is like Nathan or something? Like, so that's a guy? Yeah. That's from uh, uh, Nathan, Nat no, no, where, who are you talking about? Natalie Wynn. Natalie the, the Wynn? It's a joke about trannies. So uh, I don't know. I, it, she is uh, transgender. I don't. I tried to find what her real name was. All I found was her original name started with N, so it may have been Nathan. I don't know. But she's a former academic philosopher who goes by the name ContraPoints, and she started her YouTube channel in response to Gamergate. And we don't really have time to go into Gamergate, but if you don't know what Gamergate is, we are going to link an article explaining what that is in the mm -hmm. description. Uh, that was a big thing that blew up in 2014, kind of set the stage for the alt-right meme that, culture. That could have that could be a whole episode in its own. Like that, that was a, a big deal. Yeah, that's something we kind of need to get a guest on who is into gaming, into the gaming world uh, to talk about that. Um, Ian Danskin, he is the creative proprietor of Innuendo Studios. I believe he's Canadian. He also got, uh, I guess, uh, it's the correct alt-right term, blue-pilled, if you become a leftist. 
Mm-hmm. Is that blue pilled? Okay. Yes. So yeah, he became he also became blue pilled during Gamergate. Harry Brewis, who runs the gaming channel H Bomber Guy, he works as a freelance writer, editor, and animator on the side. And there's Lindsay Ellis. Um, she runs a YouTube channel by her own name. Wait, Lindsay Ellis? I know who that is. She was um she was the nostalgia chick way back in the day. You remember the nostalgia critic, right? I don't she, know. Chan- nostalgia critic. He was like an old school reviewer of like really bad old movies. He did like these riffs and kind of goofy skits with him. And he he's descended. He's still going to this day. He first got started back in like 2008, I think. But like he's still going, but the quality of his videos is completely cratered to absolute bottom but he had a whole content network called channel awesome and like the first person he recruited was Lindsay ellis to be his female counterpart the nostalgia chick but then late in later years she became like a hardcore leftist feminist and everything so yeah, yeah it's like gotta she, be the same one yeah she had an abortion and people kind of criticized she famously got into a spat with the angry video game nerd now of course you know who the angry video game nerd is right james Rolf. oh that the original like the og angry reviewer this is old school internet history in about 2006, James Rolfe it went by the name The Angry Video Game Nerd, and he reviewed really bad old retro games. They famously got into a bit of a spat when uh, he, he's a huge fan of Ghostbusters. It's his favorite movie of all time. When the trailer first came out for the awful 2016 remake of Ghostbusters with all women, like Leslie Jones, Melissa McCarthy, he posted a video on his channel saying, I'm not going to review it because I'm not going to go see it. I am not going to waste time or money watching what I know is going to be a terrible movie and a terrible remake of my favorite movie of all time. And she criticized him. It was like, yeah, I too love to bash movies I've never even watched. And they had a bit of a spat back and forth about that, which he was ultimately vindicated when, spoiler alert, the movie turned out to be terrible after all. But yeah, so Lindsay Ellis, that is definitely uh, an old original lol cow of the internet from way mm. back in the mid-2000s. Lol cow? Yes. Never heard of that term. That is, that's kind of a, yeah, never heard that's, of that. Uh, that shows, I do know, lol see, cow. I know my internet history, but I, I don't know who this bread tube is. So well, I, you learn you, something you've new heard, every day. You've heard of these people, a lot of these people, I'm sure. They're, yeah. They're yeah. basically just, that's the name they gave them based on a, the 19th century socialists, just to kind of lump them all mm-hmm. together. They used to go by leftist tube and they thought, hey, you know so what? That's let's pretty get, lame, yeah. Yeah, let's come up with a little more, a little cooler name that kind of shows we're Marxist by calling ourselves bread tubes to give, I don't know, <laughs> give, give, give bread to the masses. So what all what most of these people have in common, if you dig into their early childhood uh, history, you find that almost all of them, at least every single one of them that I looked into, I haven't found any exceptions. Every single one of them had a very privileged childhood. And when I say privileged, I mean their parents were doctors, lawyers, academics. Not just middle class, like upper, upper middle class. Upper like middle class. Some yeah. of them ab- absolutely wealthy, like the, the kind of children who literally don't have to work. Unless they just want to work, that that type of stuff. So they can afford to just be YouTubers and not worry about having to pay the bills or anything. Yes, yes. And of course, what's interesting is they'll interview these people and ask them, well, how can you be a socialist but yet make all this money on YouTube? Like the guy, uh, Hassan Piker, mm-hmm. ended up buying himself a th- like a $3 million home in California. And they ask him, you know, how can you, you know, how can you justify all this wealth? But the reality is most of these people, like one of them, the, the chick who uh, – one of the transgender ones, Lindsay what, – what the hell was her name? Uh, Lindsay, Natalie Wynn. Natalie Wynn. Natalie Wynn. She, but like she moved to Baltimore and worked some kind of service job or whatever um, on the side. But the thing is like you have people who are – whose parents pay for them to go to liberal arts schools. They're not going to starve if they can't make money on YouTube. Another thing they have in common – is uh, typically some form of deviancy, degeneracy, mm-hmm. trauma, mm-hmm. or gross immoral behavior. Yeah. Uh, most of the more prominent ones are transgenders. Yes. Or what they call gender queers, Ugh. homosexuals, Disgusting. non-binary, or multiple combinations of all of the above. And so one of them, she was originally a male, became a transgender, and then after becoming a transgender female, decided that she was a lesbian. So she still liked women, even after going through the transgenderism. She so the, became a woman so she could like women as a woman. So the same trajectory as Ellen Page, basically. 
Yeah. Oh my <laughs> and god. Yeah. That. Oh, you yeah. know that's the definition of doing all this for attention. She first came out, quote unquote, came out as a lesbian for attention. Then just as that faded away and she became irrelevant again, then she became transgender. She became a man well, for, for attention. Attention or just being deeply, deeply unwell. And yeah. that seems to be a common theme among these people. Like you don't see many people – like you don't have like a Caleb Kane. Caleb Kane is the exception. He's not big. Like nobody's heard of him because, except for the New York Times article. But you don't have just a normal kid raised in a Christian family home and decide, you know what? I think we should have more redistribution of wealth. I think I'm a socialist. Come out and make – YouTube videos. Mm. And as we're going to see, it's because socialism isn't the is that's not the key. Deviancy is the key. Yes. Deviating from hedonism. the normal yes, yeah. hedonism, deviating from normal, acceptable acceptable heteronormal heteronormal society. That is the key. The socialism is a sideshow. Socialism in communism, Marxism, that is not the central key point of any of this stuff. And actual Marxists recognize this. Now these people are a bunch of clowns. Who are using leftist rhetoric and leftist talking points to push what is essentially a very establishment, a very 21st century Western establishment position on, on most issues. So what's interesting, what's really funny is that the intersectionality of these dirtbags often has them eaten their own. Uh, so you got the whole bread tube is too white narrative that has prompted a bunch of melanin rich knockoffs like <laughs> Cat Black. Cat uh, Black, her last name is spelled B L A Q U E. Yes, Cat Black. Uh, she is a black British YouTuber who is constantly critiques the left for being too white. And this is what this is a common thread. This is what you see whenever you see the left turn intersectional. And it shows you they're not. They're not a serious left wing. They're not no. interested in left wing politics. Their coalition will fall apart easily if they do not have a single boogeyman to unify them. Mm -hmm. And whether it's Trump or whether it's white people as a whole, it collapses on itself. And the whole point of their movement, of the bread tube movement, isn't to push any sort of agenda. It's just to critique the right. All they do is try to pull people out of the far right. And now they are moderately successful. It's hard to gauge their success, but all through Reddit, you do find multiple commenters who say, yeah, I was alt right now. I completely oppose racism and homophobia and all this other stuff. So it's not that they're not having any impact. Because you got to remember a lot of these people who went down these rabbit holes and became far right in the mid 20 teens were people who were teenagers or young adults who didn't have good fatherly figures in their homes. People who didn't have many friends, people who were lost, who felt many of them suicidal, many of them drug addicts. And so they were looking for community. The alt-right embraced them. But look, if your whole ideology is built around hatred of a certain group of people, if you happen to meet somebody in that group and decide, you know what, I don't hate these people, then your whole ideology is blown to bits. And this is the thing with a lot of people on the alt-right. They don't really have a cohesive worldview. They're just really messed up people who had messed up childhoods who have been embraced by this radical internet based fringe culture. And when they find out that they don't have any use for that fringe culture anymore, they jump to another fringe culture. So it's very easy for them to be successful in recruiting people from the far right to jump to this new establishment far left. And um, so, and so it, it's not like they don't pose any threat at all to, to our country or to humanity as a whole because, again, there's tens of millions of people who view their videos every single month. They, they are extremely influential. They've been profiled by, the major, by major magazines, newspapers throughout the Western world. But one thing I want to point out is consider how much damage this cohort of deviant philosophers could inflict if YouTube and more ominously our own governments with unlimited resources sponsored by our tax dollars – put their thumbs on the scales in their favor because by on their own, they're already being moderately successful. But if, can you imagine how successful they would be if YouTube decided to boost their content 
over right wing content, which YouTube has been doing. They since. already do that. Yeah, Facebook, they all shadow boosting. They do this stuff all the time. YouTube specifically admitted to doing this starting in 2019. So for over two and a half years now, that's what YouTube has been doing. They've been boosting these people's content. There is not a le- there is no longer a level playing field between the right and the left. These leftists are being boosted. Uh, so imagine if governments put their thumbs on the scale of these YouTubers and say gave them tips on how to win over the right. Put you know put our tax dollars to use by Give them a little stipend to help them out, you know, help them out with rent or whatever. Imagine how much damage they could do in addition to the damage that they're doing with YouTube putting their thumbs on the scale. So this website called The Gray Zone recently leaked documents that show that the British government is doing exactly that. They are putting their thumbs on the scale of this particular bread tuber named Abigail Thorne, who was previously a male and became a transgender, became Abigail. So this is by Kit Clarenberg and Max Blumenthal. Leaked files expose serious psyops veteran astroturfing bread tube star to counter COVID restriction critics. By covertly recruiting popular YouTube influencer Abigail Thorne to counter growing opposition to UK government COVID restrictions, psyops pros are bringing home the tactics they honed in the Syrian dirty war. Leaked documents have revealed a state-sponsored influence operation designed to undermine critics of the British government's coronavirus policies by astroturfing a prominent founder of the bread tube clique of anti-fascist YouTube influencers. The project aims to conduct psychological profiling on British citizens dissenting against policies such as mandatory vaccination and lockdowns, then leverage the data to establish a YouTube channel that portrays these critics as dangerous super spreaders of of disinformation. Designed to curb the influence of pseudoscience material online with specific emphasis on coronavirus-related anti-vaxxing sentiment, the operation is run by the UK's royal institution and dubbed Challenging Pseudoscience. Its top patron is Charles, the Prince of Wales, next in line to the British throne, who recently hit out at supposed conspiracy theories surrounding COVID-19 vaccines. The organization received a substantial cash injection in 2020 from the UK government's Culture Recovery Fund, earmarked for video production. Leaked files obtained by the Grey Zone indicate that the Royal Institution has enlisted the services of Valent Projects, a social change communications firm founded by a public relations operative previously involved in the UK Foreign Office's campaign for violent regime change in Syria. Valent has also been sponsored by the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, and a U.S. intelligence cutout for a project aimed at investigating disinformation. And we've talked about USAID before. Obviously, it's a wing of the State Department that uh, injects cash into countries that they want to see regime change or um, uh, what, what would you call it, um, administration change. Like if they want to see either a peaceful or violent revolution in a country so they have a government that's more favorable to the aims of the State Department, USAID will give charitable donations to nonprofit groups who advocate for political change in those countries. And now we see USAID has given money to Valent, this organization that was hired by the UK's Royal Institution, which is also sponsored by British taxpayers, to change public opinion on COVID vaccinations and COVID restrictions. Valent's central role in the operation highlights the trend of information warfare specialists bringing the techniques they honed against targets like the Syrian government back home to the West, where increasingly unpopular governments confront masses of citizens ever bristling at coronavirus restrictions. And, you know, again, we've talked about this before. What you have when you what you had after the Cold War was you had the UK government, the US government, the Western, the NATO governments, they were so used to running intelligence operations in neutral countries to make sure that the balance of power was maintained and make sure that they kept the edge over the Soviet Union. Well, after the Soviet Union collapsed and we were no longer staring down the barrels of the the Russian bear, you had these huge bureaucracies, you had these huge intelligence operations that now had 
to do something with all of their material, all of their intelligence, all of that money. So they turned to try to democratize the world, whether this was in Eastern Europe, whether this was in the Middle East, and of course, as they mentioned, in Syria. But at this point, they're now taking those resources and they're directing them against their own citizens. So information warfare that they normally would have aimed at a country that they sought regime change in, they're now turning around and they're aiming them at their own citizens who are dissenting against the regime and what the regime wants regarding COVID-19 or race relations or anything for that matter. According to internal documents, Valent plans to design a, quote, mass appeal social media campaign fronted and owned by prominent social media figure Abigail Thorne, who is the founder of Philosophy Tube. Valence research on British citizens who reject official policy on COVID-19, quote, will be used to devise a campaign that utilizes YouTuber Abigail Thorne's existing platform to achieve a measurable cognitive shift in the target audience, the target audience being their own people. Boasting over 1 million subscribers to her YouTube channel and more than 7,000 Patreon supporters, Thorne has established a potent vehicle for any communications campaign. She is also a core member of BreadTube, an assortment of left-branded social media influencers that has attracted intense establishment interest for its purported ability to pop YouTube's political bubbles to create space for de-radicalization. While top BreadTubers are best known for employing memes and theatrical ploys to counter right-wing narratives, they have also dedicated intense energy to attacking the anti-imperialist left as quote-unquote tankies engaged in a secret red-brown alliance with right-wing extremists. Tankies refers to people who justify the Soviet Union's use of tanks against Hungary when Hungary staged its 1956 revolution. In his book, BreadTube Serves Imperialism, Examining the New Brand of Internet Pseudo-Socialism, socialist organizer Caleb Malpin likened BreadTube to the counter-gangs deployed by British and U.S. intelligence to infiltrate and dismantle insurgent forces from Kenya to Southeast Asia during the Cold War. BreadTube, quote, speaks in the name of left-wing sounding ideals. In reality, it is likely serving one section of the American ruling elite and the intelligence agencies, Maupin wrote. And it's very obvious from their content because they're far more focused on cultural war, on culture wars against right-wingers than they are on economic wars against capitalists. Remember, these people are becoming rich off of their YouTube channels. They're buying multi-million dollar homes. They're not actual the, Marxists. The, they never were true communists or true socialists. No, not in a million years. Their reaction is against the culture warriors. They want to create a degenerate culture that rejects heteronormativity and creates the kind of society that deviants can rule supreme. They're not interested in the economics of socialism. The covert relationship between BreadTube's Abigail Thorne Valent Projects and the Royal Institute appears to validate Maupin's thesis. He said, quote, it does not surprise me at all to find out there is documented evidence that the British royal family and an intelligence contractor is bankrolling the work of Abigail Thorne. It lines up with everything I have observed about her and the BreadTube trend overall. He continued, BreadTube socialism is not really socialism. It is mobilizing young liberals to keep dissident elements in line. It's securing the rule of British and American corporations over the planet by trying to silence those who get in the way, end quote. And this completely makes sense because if you think about it, when was the last time you had a serious threat to the system, to the post-Cold War neoliberal system from the left? It was Occupy Wall Street. What happened to the left after Occupy Wall Street? They immediately de-emphasized economic issues and they brought to the forefront cultural issues. Because as I mentioned, what's happening among these bread tubers? What's, what are they promote? What is YouTube promoting now that these bread tubers are getting big? They're now promoting dissident voices on the left, specifically non-white dissident voices to come on and criticize these white leftists for being white. And so now you have, rather than create a cohesive leftist front against the right, YouTube and obviously the governments behind who support this uh, fractionalization of the left, they're purposely promoting these non-white leftists 
to corral non-white leftists into their own separate camps so they can't create a united front. These bread tubers are absolutely no threat to the system. They're in fact either willfully, whether they're willfully doing it or not, they are helping the system maintain the status quo by keeping leftists in check and in the process taking down right-wingers and fractional, uh, fractionalizing the right by winning right -winger, young right-wingers over to their side. Other popular bread tube figures include Valsh, a video gamer from Beverly Hills, California named Ian Kuczynski, known for his superficial understanding of Marxism, crude invective against Trump supporters. He said, quote, they disappear or we all do, about Trump supporters, female high school athletes, and imprisoned journalist Julian Assange. Uh, this is what he said about Assange. Quote, I want Assange to die in a CIA black site just because it would trigger all the worst people on Twitter, end quote. Gee, I'm old enough to remember when the left loved Julian Assange. Yeah, there is, this, this shows any leftist who attacks Julian Assange is not a real leftist. This shows that they are being manipulated or funded by the U.S. And, or possibly both the U.S. and the U.K. governments. Then there is Sean, a British-based bread tuber whose recent attack on left-wing political comedian Jimmy Dore's criticism of government COVID restrictions contained echoes of the challenging pseudoscience project prepared for Thorn by intelligence-related outfits. Sean's arguments relied heavily on statements by official experts in U.S. government bodies like the FDA and CDC. While Dore has been limited by YouTube's sweeping speech codes, Sean's viral video appears to have benefited from an algorithmic boost, or as they call it, shadow boosting. So this is another thing you'll see. You'll see these leftists uh, just viciously attack other leftists, and the arguments that they'll use are straight out of the U.S. State Department and straight out of the British government. Quote, all the key signs of infiltration are there, Caleb Maupin said of BreadTube. Quote, since when does U.S. mainstream media highlight the work of Marxist revolutionaries? Why are people who seem so unfamiliar with basic elements of socialist ideology suddenly elevated to the position of respected experts by the algorithms? Why do their foreign policy views seem to line up so closely with the U.S. State Department? I have had no doubt they were being covertly supported by powerful entities with goals other than overthrowing capitalism, end quote. And that's another thing. Why would the government and corporations promote Marxists? That makes no sense and it's not in their interest. So obviously these people aren't real Marxists. And obviously the socialist boogeyman that the American right keeps complaining about isn't actually socialist. Unlike some fellow bread tubers, Thorne comes across as amiable and trustworthy, fostering a personal bond with her viewers and regularly publishing thank you notes to patrons, listing them by name. These qualities have attracted support for philosophy too by both public and private backers. Thorne's April 2021 dismantling of the politics of right-wing culture warrior Jordan Peterson has racked up almost 2 million views and was sponsored by CuriosityStream, a U.S. media streaming service. The video opens with a black screen disclosing support provided by the company and claiming Thorne would donate her, her fee to the feminist campaign group Sisters Uncut. The video is also emblazoned with the YouTube's paid promotion logo. So, yeah, all these corporations, uh, you got YouTube, you've got CuriosityStream, all these mega corporations are sponsoring Marxists who allegedly want to dismantle capitalism and destroy these corporations. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, It if reminds I'm, me of what Trump said in the second debate with Hillary Clinton where he said, you know, all of these Wall Street donors who support her, when she turns around and says she's going to come down on Wall Street, that either means these people are really stupid or they know that she is all talk and no action and she's not going to go after Wall Street. And obviously it's the latter. Uh, yes, it's exactly. the same here. They know they're, These corporations aren't stupid. They know what they're doing. They know these people are not going to institute are not going to implement some revolution against them anytime soon so she's got so that she's got curiosity stream and youtube she's got that on her screen but yet there's no disclaimer referring to support from the royal institution and that may be because the covid campaign was intended to be covert and you know they didn't want to let anybody know that the royal institution was sponsoring her videos or working or colluding with her the challenging pseudoscience operation this is the name the name of the official operation by valent 
that was designed for Thorne was launched in February 2021 by liberal science journalist Angela Saini, the author of several popular titles in a forthcoming book on the origins of patriarchy. She is also part of the Lancet COVID-19 Commission's Task Force on Global Health Diplomacy. The commission's chief, Peter Daszak, who many of our listeners I'm sure have heard of, is a zoologist who serves as president of the U.S.-based NGO known as EcoHealth Alliance and was forced to resign in June over conflict of interest issues. In the years leading up to the outbreak of COVID-19, Daszak worked extensively on bat coronaviruses and gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. His organization received tens of millions of dollars in funding from the Pentagon's Defense Threat Reduction Agency, a division countering weapons of mass destruction and improvised threat networks. In December 2019, Daszak warned that coronaviruses can, quote, get into human, cell, into human cells, one can, quote, manipulate them in the lab pretty easily, and, quote, you can't vaccinate against them. So who is, what is Valent? So Valent, this, uh, this contractor hired to run this project of, of, uh, of countering misinformation using Thorn. Valent was founded by Emil Kahn. Emil Kahn is a former Reuters and BBC reporter who officially left journalism, quote, to help good causes navigate the new information landscape. From February, Valent Projects proposed a two-phase project to develop an understanding of the psychological drivers behind the generation and spread of anti-vaxxer narratives. It planned to exploit this data to develop and test public messaging responses. In the campaign's first phase, extensive online interviews were to be conducted along with ethnographic research to secure quote, comprehensive understanding of the key online audiences driving anti-vaxxing mis-slash-disinformation around the coronavirus pandemic. Valent Projects then plan to draw together insights from these findings, developing comprehensive audience profiles, including demographic information, to design a mass appeal social media campaign fronted and owned by prominent social media figure Abigail Thorne, who, of course, runs PhilosophyTube. Valent indicated its intent to exploit Philosophy Tube's sizable platform to, quote, achieve a measurable cognitive shift in the target audience. Reaching the intended viewers was forecast to be a significant task in itself. However, Valent noted, noted most Philosophy Tube viewers are within the age of 18 to 35, but existing research suggested that most prolific consumers of pseudoscience material was, were over the age of 45. In August 2020, Thorne uploaded a video entitled, Who is Afraid of the Experts? Very interesting. A socialist up uploading a video saying, asking who's afraid of the experts, supporting the system, supporting the experts. And the 45-minute long defense of the scientific consensus is the first result in any search for the term vaccine on PhilosophyTube's channel. The leaked documents thus expose what had long been suspected by critics of BreadTube. The popular social media collective has been instrumentalized by powerful interests with connections to Western intelligence agencies. Now, when, when asked about the leaked files on Twitter, Valent Project CEO Emil Khan flew into an absolute rage, angrily asserting that they were, quote, obtained through hacking and then doctored in the manner of, quote, classic doxing and threatened legal action against this journalist, the journalist who authored this, for publicizing. Khan later pumped out a series of tweets aimed at controlling the damage of his imminent exposure. In one, he claimed that a co-author of the piece would publish their reporting in Russian state-affiliated media. But... You know, that, that's, another, that, that's what they always do. Like if you're if you discover if you have leaked documents that gives a black eye to British or American intelligence services showing that they're basically using their intelligence services against domestic against their own people. The immediate response is, well, this is like WikiLeaks. They're by the Russians for the Russians they're going to be published by Russians. This is against our people and our democracy rather than addressing the claims. Rather than, you know, countering the claims, this is what happened during the Clinton campaign. Rather than coming out and explaining away some of those emails, 
They just attacked it as, you know, well, this is Russia's doing rather than saying with uh, Joe Biden, rather than counter the Hunter Biden story, just said, well, that's Russian disinformation. It, it, they always throw the blame on Russia as if if something is Russian, it's automatically bad. If something comes out of Russia, oh, I don't want to drink vodka because it's Russian, that, that type of thing. If it comes out of Russian as if that's supposed to be end of debate, end of discussion, oh, it's Russian, it's automatically negative. When challenged on this claim of doctrine, Khan did not respond. Valent Projects lists on its website that the Royal Institution is one of its clients. An accompanying write-up notes that it developed and implemented a data-led behavior change aimed at understanding and working with the psychological drivers behind anti-vaxxer sentiment in the UK. Moreover, none other than Abigail Thorne was a guest of honor at Challenging Pseudoscience's launch event called Vaccine Warriors and Warriors, which featured a debate on how vaccines work, why people are skeptical despite the evidence, and how disinformation about vaccines spreads online. In May, Thorne published a characteristically ornate video, Ignorance and Censorship, which touched on the topic of disinformation and vaccines. The next month, Challenging Pseudoscience convened a similarly named panel discussion entitled Misinformation or Censorship. Then the newly launched Challenging Pseudoscience podcast shared two prior Royal Institution debates, the aforementioned Vaccines, Warriors and Warriors, Disinformation and How to Counter It, which featured none other than Emil Khan as a speaker. So what's interesting about the Royal Institution is they had been forced to rent out their headquarters for conferences, corporate bashes and weddings just to plug a multi-million pound budget deficit in late 2015. They actually auctioned off their, uh, their first editions of works by Charles Darwin, Isaac Newton, and other eminent scientists. What's interesting is that in miraculously, though, in October 2020, the institution received hundreds of thousands of pounds from the UK government's Culture Recovery Fund to, quote-unquote, help face the challenges of the coronavirus pandemic and ensure it has a sustainable future. So what's interesting about this is it's not just the fact that you've got a British government institution that is funded by taxpayers that is hiring a contractor to work with one of the probably the most prominent bread tuber out there to push the government's position on vaccines and to push the government's position in its attacks on anti-vaxxers. But Valent Project staffer Hamish Falconer, uh, he previously worked with the Syrian rebels to try to boost their popularity in Syria and also to try to convince what the Western media and the Western people in, Brit in Britain and America to support them. And many of these rebels in Syria were Islamic radicals. They were the people part of the Free Syrian Army that the United States and neocons were trying their best to get the United States to support, to overthrow Bashar al-Assad. So you got these contractors who are now taking their expertise and turning them against the native populations of the UK and America through these bread tubers. When they espouse Marxism, they espouse socialism, if you read between the lines, if you listen between the lines – they're actually just promoting degeneracy. They're promoting moral degeneracy. They're trying their best to bring people who have been red-pilled on the right over to the left on issues like abortion, sexuality, whether it's homosexuality or it's all the, you know, the new non-binary stuff that they create. But not only that, but they're not actually promoting a worldview. They're just critiquing a worldview to divide opposition to the system that has reigned in the United States and the UK since the end of the Cold War. This see so stuff like this. If it was more widely known, let, let me let me put it this way: If these were right wing YouTubers that our tax dollars were going to, MSNBC would be given this wall to wall coverage. But because these are not right wingers, like can you imagine if Stephen Crowder was receiving taxpayer funds from the UK or taxpayer funds from the US, Trump would probably get impeached over it. Yeah, you're you're right. You're exactly right. Trump would get impeached for it. I mean, they would be one. They would. This would be January sixth on steroids. If they they'd knew call that, for Stephen Crowder to be arrested. Yeah, yes, like, exactly. Yeah, this. They knew that their tax dollars were going to fund Stephen Crowder. This would receive complete wall-to-wall -wall coverage in the Washington Post, every single leftist publication. 
But because most people, you had never heard of bread tube, most, most people have never heard of bread tube. Most of the people who have heard of bread tube, again, they're between the ages of 18 and 35. They're influent. They're, uh, they're very naive about politics. They're just kind of getting their footing, trying to figure out where they fall in the political spectrum. And these are impressionable people who are being influenced by people who are complete, who are passing themselves off as edgy Marxists or edgy socialists. If these people ever gained power, they would not abolish, they would not take over the means of production. They would simply funnel the means of production to people who agree with them on their gender ideology. It's the same with Black Lives Matter claiming they want to burn down the system and dismantle it. No, they really don't. They want to take over the system. They don't want to tear down corporations. They want to install their people as CEOs. They want widespread affirmative action nationwide. That's all it really is. It's the same thing. Okay, so rather than just critique what's happening, this is what leftists do. They just want to critique. They want to expose the right. They want to expose the, what the corporate overlords are doing. So what is the solution to this problem? Like, okay, so it's good that we know about this. So we know that our tax dollars are funding leftist YouTubers to influence public opinion on COVID-19 vaccines. Okay, we, we know that through this these leaked documents. What do we do about it? So in order for any of this to change, Americans' understanding of USAID has to change because USAID is the funnel through which our tax dollars go to fund influence campaigns in foreign countries. This is what people on the anti-war right and the anti-war left in the early Bush years were saying all along. You know, right now we're funding coups in other countries, but one day this funding is going to be turned against us. So, and this is the thing that a lot of people on the right didn't recognize. Okay, yeah, they're doing this to big bad terrorists now, but in 20 years they're going to be doing it to us, us on the right, because we don't hold the institutional levels of levers of power. So in order to stop this, it has to become a political issue on the right to defund USAID actually completely dismantle it because USAID serves no other purpose other than to funnel our tax dollars to regime change in foreign countries and as we can see now funnel our tax dollars to undermining our political opinions in the United States undermining our children's views of sexuality in the United States because people they their her views are boosted Abigail Thorne's views are boosted on YouTube you've got young people who see that okay I'm convinced I'm going to get the vaccine Okay, that's nice when they keep going down the rabbit hole, they watch your other views. And then, then you have heartbreaking families because for Christmas, the daughter pipes up and says, oh, by the way, I'm a boy now. I want you to refer to me as Tom. I just killed Abby. I'm no longer your daughter, Abby. I'm your son, Tom. And if you refuse to call me by Tom, I disavow you. This is where this stuff leads. So this is why USAID is the most, it's one of the worst things that our tax dollars go to. And it needs to become a political issue on the right to it completely dismantle it. It represents the worst of both the federal bureaucracy and the, the perils of international aid, of constant foreign aid. It's, it's both of those terrible things. Yes, because we're essentially using our what we did to other countries. We're now doing it to ourselves and our, and our children, eventually our grandchildren, by, uh, by, by uh, continuing to fund this poison. <sighs> well, I never thought that the idea of government-funded bread could be so terrifying. And yet here we are. That is all the time we have left for episode number 48, the first episode of 2022 of The Right Take. This will most likely be posted either tonight as of the night of recording or tomorrow. So whenever this is posted, happy January 6th day, everybody. We will be celebrating that day as we should be and what it means for America and the future of the right if we can finally get bold enough. We will probably in the future be doing a more in-depth, a deep dive episode focusing on January 6th, all the media lies about it, debunking the biggest lies about you know the, the so-called violence that happened and the truth about what has been happening to the prisoners since then. So stay tuned for that. We are very excited for that episode. And as always, you can follow all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. 
The list of all the social media websites and podcast platforms where we are available is at righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, guys, if you are feeling so generous, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.